Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. (laughs) The second annual NDC Minnesota is coming up May 6th through 9th. Go to ndcminnesota.com today to register. And tell them Carl and Richard sent you. seen this many people gathered in one place since Donald Trump's inauguration. Oh. <laughs> that is dark. And I mean that sincerely. <laughs> uh, how you doing, Porto? We're glad to be here. This is uh, NDC Porto, Portugal. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to say three words. Good, cheap wine. Nah. What the hell? Where have you been all my life? <laughs> Two uh, bucks for a great bottle of wine at yeah. the supermarket. That's just unheard of. Crazy. Uh, and we have to talk about Jerry, at least a little bit, right? Oh, that's our friend that we met um, when the first day we came here, Jerry Grouper. Yeah, Jerry Grouper. Jerry Grouper was a... Jerry Grouper was a fish. He was a fish. And we ate him. We ate him, yeah. And he was delicious. <laughs> and we miss him now, but we're looking forward to meeting some of his friends. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry Grouper. <laughs> okay, never mind. All right, you're going too far. I know. Well, uh, the way we start off this show is a couple of items, and mine is called Better Know a Framework, so roll the crazy music. All right, buddy, what do you got? I got dad-style programming jokes. Oh, no. It's a GitHub repo, I swear to God. Well, at least it's on GitHub, so it's open source. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right. But dad jokes for programmers. So how do you get the code for the bank vault? How? You check out their branch. Ah, uh, save me. This is great. I'm, don't don't e- even laugh at any of these. Yeah, be awesome. Sort of the rules. Yeah. All right. So uh, what do you call a busy waiter? What? A server. Uh, what do you call an idle server? What? A waiter. <laughs> oh, wait. I'm not laugh. supposed to laugh. No laughing. That was funny. How many prologue programmers does it take to change a light bulb? How many? Yes. <laughs> I'm doing this wrong. Only one this more. Working. What, <laughs> what diet did the ghost developer go on? What diet? Boolean. I don't even get that. That's not even funny. Boo. Oh, boo. <laughs> the ghost developer. There you go. I'm going to edit that one out. <laughs> Why was the developer unhappy at their job? Why? They wanted a raise. That's good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, you have permission to laugh at Okay. That. All right. I'm not going to go on. This mm-hmm. is just terrible. You can do this on your own. Time. And you can contribute your own, too. Absolutely. And if it amuses the dictator uh, uh, in charge, he will merge them in. Yeah. Do a poll request. Okay. So, who's talking to us today, Richard? Grab the comment on the show 1409, the one we did back in February of 2017, two years ago, uh, with Brock and Dominic talking about Identity Server 4. We did it in NDC London. Yeah. Now we're at NDC Porto. So almost the same thing. And there's a few comments uh, on the show, which are great. This particular comment, admittedly, two years ago, from Greg Lower, who says, Hey, guys, first, thanks for all you do for the development community. During the show, there was some discussion on how to achieve single sign-on and the advice around using a common login web page on top of Identity Server and the usage of an in-app browser tab in conjunction with mobile apps on iOS and Android. Right. I was hoping to hear some similar guidance for single sign-on in a scenario where you have a web application 
and a desktop application, let's say WinForms of WPF. What is the recommended practice in a case like this? As far as I can tell through the research so far, it wouldn't work the same way as a mobile in-app browser tab scenario like you described. I think it boils down to the browser being more isolated under Windows compared to how mobile iOS Android environments work. Would I need to settle for an embedded web browser approach? Ionic, that kind of thing. If I did that, I still wouldn't probably provide true single sign-on if the user happened to open the browser separately from the desktop app and navigate to the web application. Hmm. Is this only truly achievable if both applications are using Windows security, which in turn probably means Active Directory with ADFS? That would satisfy the requirements for some of my customers, but not all of them. I have some customers who need single sign-on across my desktop and WinForms app with common identity and user management solutions they're built on Identity Server, which at this time was version 3, because it was two years ago. They've got later versions. And guys, let, let us introduce you, and I'm sure you have a better answer to this question than Greg does, than I have for Greg. So, Greg, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code by is on its way to you, and if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via social media. We publish every show to Facebook, and if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code by. Music to Code by now up to 19? 19? And... Wow, reduce the price to $39. Ah, you're a good man. I take yep. back all those things I said about you. And I'm also creating a license for people who want to use it on their Twitch stream because everybody wants to use it on oh, their right. Twitch stream. Oh, uh, right. Jeff Fritz started that, right? Yep. Okay, that's yep. cool. Yeah. So Dominic and Brock are here. We really don't need to introduce them, but I'll let them introduce themselves anyway. I'm Dominic. Hi, I'm Brock. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel introduced now. <laughs> okay. Uh, any comment uh, towards the, the Greg there regarding uh, wind forms and web apps and single sign-on? So when I understood that correctly, well, he was asking, like, can you get single sign-on between the browser and this wind forms app and so on? And maybe a mobile. Yeah. A, a mobile. Mobile app. I'll yeah, throw all the things in. On a different hardware? Well, that would be a little tricky, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> So but let's um, just do the WinForms and a web page yeah. scenario. So, so I mean, I think what he's hoping for is I log in on a web page, and then when I open the WinForm app, it just says, oh, I already have credentials, and off I go. I can't imagine that works. It does. Oh, wow. Um, but they have to share the same browser. Oh, right? So basically right. what the, the oh. WinForms app could do is, is invoke the system browser, the, the, the default browser on the system. Right. It will pick up the existing logon session. It will come back to the WinForms app, say, hey, he's logged in. Here's your token. That's it. So he doesn't actually have to use the browser in the app. He just has to make it called the app. It, it can't use the browser in the app because right. otherwise that, uh, the cookie container is isolated to the app. Right. Whereas you want to have the cookies on the system browser. So you Got have it. to share the browser. So you could add to a WinForms app a call to see if there was a browser session that they could reference? Well, basically what you do is you, you do process.start, pass yeah. in the start URL. This will yeah. start the, the default configured browser on the machine right. that will pick up the existing logon session and then will come back to the WinForms app and say, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, and there's a really good example of that, which is GitHub for Windows. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. They actually have a native app you can install. And yep. one of their login options is to click a button and use your browser session. And if you're using GitHub for Windows, chances are you're already logged into GitHub. Right. So it's actually Very a really good, good example. It's, and I think it's an Electron app. So yeah. it's still yeah. writing JavaScript, but it is com uh, compiled executable. Yeah. Yep. But okay. the trick is share the browser. Yeah. Is, to, is to your other platforms check, pull the browser and see if they can get tokens from it. Yep. 
Okay. But clearly the mobile is out of the question because change no, devices. No, um, yeah. you have to share that browser. So if it's on a different device, then yeah. it wouldn't work. It's, it's the same as sometimes people ask, like, when I log into Chrome and can I get signals on to Firefox? Yeah. yeah. No. No. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you can easily break that if you're using different browsers in different instances. Yeah. But that's sort of reality. The browser is the thing that actually maintains the session. Okay. I like that. So what's new in Identity Server, gents? Well, Four, we've been doing a lot five. of work. Um, there's always ongoing things to implement. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of our list. So there are some uh, new specs coming out from okay. like the OAuth working group. Uh, one of them is something called Mutual TLS. Um, there's also something called uh, Device Flow. Um, you know, kind of low-level stuff. Device Flow is kind of an interesting one. That's targeted for um, these sort of headless device, like a smart TV. Right. Okay. And you want that to connect up to your, you know, the back-end system, but it wants to... So you, you, you probably know that, yeah, like when you log in. So I, I bought my, my son um, um, a Switch, Nintendo Switch. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when you, when you want to connect the Switch to your Nintendo account, the best thing they, they have is that you use your game controller to type in your password on. on oh, yeah. So that's fun. Um, one yeah. of the possible you know, device flow, for example, addresses this where they, if they would use device flow, what they would do is they would just show a URL, like maybe Nintendo.com slash. Login slash and then some number. Right. So you go to your desktop PC or to your mobile phone and type in that URL. You log in there, and then basically it makes the association with the console. Okay. Mm. We, so you basically type Make in a little lower for type in the yeah. password on on a real device and not on on the you know. Would a phone be yeah. doable? Yeah. I guess a phone yeah. would be doable because yeah. then you buy your Xbox too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's clever. The remarkable thing I think about device flow is that it was the first time that somebody that isn't Brock or me implemented the whole feature, the whole spec. Wow! Wow! Say some, including um, you know um, the the testing and the samples and the documentation and wow. everything. So it, it it was it was a contribution. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's so, a good day. What, what's mutual TLS? Yeah, so that that's the other thing we've been working on, and um, and that's again the, the the remarkable thing here is it's a complete sponsored feature, so that. There's a company out there that needs that feature. Oh. Right. So they are basically sponsoring the development of it. So, so the mutual TLS, um, it's the so-called MTLS spec. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that, um, you know, like in OAuth, they have this concept of client secrets, client IDs and client secrets. And um, most people use shared secrets for that, mm -hmm. right. like, like passwords. But okay. mutual TLS means that you're using an X509 client certificate for authenticating the client. Um, which is a very strong authentication. So it's 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 not for typical consumer applications. Right, most but consumers are not going to get a certificate. No. Right. Um, this particular customer has the scenario of they have medical devices, mm. and okay. when they when they uh, when they uh, produce them, they they put a, a cert on the device itself, mm -hmm. and they want this device to talk to APIs. Okay. So now what they were going to do is they're going to um, authenticate with that certificate against identity server. And we're going to issue them a token. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to use the token to talk to the APIs. But there's an additional thing about the, the mutual TLS spec is uh, it has two parts, right? One is the authentication part. And then one is called um, so-called sender-constrained token. So what we do basically is once we, we <coughs> authenticated the, the, the client, we put the thumbprint of the certificate into the access token. Your certificates have thumbs? Yes. <laughs> uh, not funny. So It's a little funny. A little funny. <laughs> hey, it's funnier than the dad jokes. <laughs> yeah. Make a pull request, yeah. <laughs> so then we can embed the thumbprint of that certificate into the access token. So now the client is using the access token to talk to an API. Okay. 
this, and he will use the same certificate now to, to open the channel to the API. Mm -hmm. So the API can now look at the thumbprint of the TLS channel, compare it with the thumbprint in the third. So now the client has proven that he is the same client that asked for the access token in the first place. Nice. Which is for medical scenarios, banking and stuff, it's, it's a pretty important feature. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that's going to be released next week. And does that actually end up being their identity in total? It's just they provide the cert, there's no login requirement at that point? Well, the, 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 the cert authenticates the client. Right. Yeah. And, and then the thumbprint makes sure that the that client, the client can actually... prove that he owns the token. It's right. proof of possession. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, normally, wasn't it just, as I remember, TLS is like you're using the private key to do the encryption and they can only decrypt it with the public key so they know it's correct because it wouldn't decrypt otherwise. Well, don't they, don't they use the private key to encrypt the, the asymmetric key that is so used for that particular payment? It uses TLS, basically. Um, mm -hmm. You know, TLS is pretty complicated, but uh, um, TLS has this, you know, the, the, normally the, the, the job of TLS is to do server authentication. Right. Right? I mean, so many people say like, oh, TLS does encryption. Yeah, it also does encryption, but it's not the most important part. Right. The, the most important part is that you authenticate the server. Yeah, you're you talking to the server you think you're talking yes. to. Yes. Yeah. And mutual TLS is an extension to TLS where you can, in addition, also authenticate the client. Right. Yeah, and he, he basically proves that he knows a private key. Right. Yeah. Without ever, uh, dis you know, um, disclosing Without revealing that, it. That, that private key. Right. That's cool. And it's just an, an extension on OAuth, basically, to, to add this, you know, mutual TLS is a very strong type of, of, of authentication. Yeah. Um, and as I said, it's not suitable for many consumer scenarios, but for many, you know, for, for specialized scenarios like healthcare, governments. I, I actually uh, think a lot of IoT stuff makes sense in this, where it's yes. often headless, there's no other way to prove identity. Yes. That that cert ends up being the identity it is, for all those it, things. It is kind of an IoT scenario. Yeah. Because these medical devices, they are, are really IoT. Yeah. 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 All right, no, I like that. So that, that's going to be released next week, actually. Cool. Um, we, we're done well, this show that. comes out in May. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. We so might. We, are, we are planning to do that the first week of March. Yes. And you'll be on time. <clears throat> Maybe. So <laughs> See, the May's useful. We there. sort of promise. They'll be done. It'll be done for sure. So uh, the other thing we're working on, or, or actually have done at this point, is um, uh, Identity Server obviously is a server component, but you're going to have to write client apps that connect Identity Server to get tokens and do what they need to do. Mm -hmm. So one of the other things we've done is updated um, one of our our client library is the one that's uh, targeted for JavaScript spa style applications. Okay. And there's um, some updated guidance in the um, OWATH working group on how spa apps should be doing all this, you know, token-based security and API security. Um, and the short history of it is that um, when they were first coming out with OAuth and how to solve how to spa apps can do API security, um, this was a long time ago, so we didn't have all these modern features in browsers like cores uh, and things like that. Yeah. So they had a simplified workflow for how your JavaScript app would would go to the token server and get tokens, um, but it wasn't maybe the most ideal, but it was the kind of the best we had mm, at sure. the time. Um, but in the last many years, there's been uh, lots of updates for browsers, lots of really new uh, security features for from the uh, W3C. Right. Um, and, um, you know, cores is one of them. And um, so they've, they've done an update, if you will, to the guidance for these JavaScript applications. So it's a little bit of a protocol flow. 
Um, so that that's some of the work we worked on. That actually was also a sponsored uh, project as well. That's so, really great to hear that these these features are getting sponsored. Yeah, it's a, it actually is quite encouraging that companies are sort of stepping up. They're realizing, hey, these are these are important things that need to get done. Right. And you know, we uh, we have backlogs of things to be done, and mm-hmm. that helps prioritize. Sure. To be honest, money talks. It it certainly does. <laughs> and. Um, yeah, and it was it was good. I mean, I, I enjoyed working on it. It was good to kind of get us updated with the the latest guidance. So yeah, that's the big. Update. So what's the problem? What makes spas different from a security context point of view? Why <laughs> yeah. is this a problem? Yeah, yeah. So we we just covered this in our session oh, earlier great. earlier today, but I'll I'll repeat that here. So the the biggest thing is that uh, in a browser, that's this shared environment right. that multiple apps are running. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have one tab open, one loading one app, a, another tab from another you know website loading another app. I might have three or four tabs from the same site. I, I'm that kind of guy. Yeah, okay, I've seen people with you know 300 tabs. Oh yeah, open, right. Yeah. So you have there all are bad people in the world. <laughs> yes, that. absolutely, and and they're they're bad apps as well that you could be running in there. So if any one of those tabs is on a malicious website, right, and they are like are kind of guessing that you might also be logged into your good app, right, right, they may make requests. To your good app. No kidding. And, and the big concern there is that, like, let's say you have a cookie, right? And they make a request. That browser is going to send the cookie even though it came from the bad website. Wow. So that's called cross-site request forgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need protections against that. And so it used to be where um, browsers <laughs> didn't really have any. It's actually funny. Whenever we explain the problem in our workshop... People just get chills. No, no, they, 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 yeah. there's someone saying like, I don't believe that. <laughs> if that would be true, the, right. web, the web would be broken. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Guess what? Yeah. <laughs> the web's it's, broken. It's duct tape anyway, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. The entire web. Yeah. Well, cross-site scripting used to be the thing. Uh, it's still a big it, thing. It's still a big thing. Yeah. yeah. So it, that's is that how it's done with this uh, forgery? So no, the, the cross-site request forgery and the cross-site scripting are two different attacks. So mm-hmm. we still have to defend against both. Okay. So... Um, so the um, the updated guidance for the for the AWAH thing that I was talking about was basically um, the mechanics of of the original recommendation on how to build your apps. They were sending these access tokens back in the URL, and so okay. those are in your browser history. That's right. And yeah. if people don't write their app the right way, they could still still be there, sure. and they could get leaked out to other apps. So the the guidance is changing the protocol flow to not send things in the URL. Yeah. Uh, and using actually a more standardized flow. Uh, if you're a, a protocol wonk, right? That's the 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 code flow in, in OAuth. Um, and so there's more back channel communication. And because it, because it's now possible to do back-channel communication. Yeah, because of course it's available now right. compared yeah. to fi- five years ago. Maybe. Yeah, so as browsers add more features, we can leverage them and build better security systems. Yeah. Oh, I totally get that. I mean, not all cross-site scripting is hostile. Cross-site forgery, I guess, is hostile. Uh, cross-site scripting is hostile, I think, by definition. Okay. Why would you... Uh, it, it, is there it, no it's, scenario it's, where cross-site scripting is legit? It, it, it's, it's like trying to remote control an application, right? right? Um, so so it, it turns out that cross-site scripting, I think, is still the, still the biggest problem on the internet. Really? Um, and, and not, you know, sanitizing your inputs in SQL injection. Well, so if you look at the OVAST top 10, right, which is kind of like the most common document that talks about these vulnerabilities, yep. 
Um, they have number one is still what they call injection attacks. Injection, and that is includes SQL injection, but right. also cross site scripting. But from a, from a web point of view, cross site scripting is the one that gives us still the most headaches. Mm. Right, I think because uh, it's pretty much game over. Well, an injection is a very fixable problem if you're diligent, but I think. Cross sites much harder to resist. How do, how do you well fortify so, 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 so basically, cross site scripting is an, is, an, is is another type of injection attack. Yeah. So okay. Actually, I, I just learned that recently. Um, the term cross site scripting was coined by a Microsoft engineer in uh, 2006 or something like. It's a long time ago, uh, but it was. It, it's not the best word for it. Uh, so what people think these days it should be called is content injection. Content yeah, injection. Right. Yeah, that sounds way more threatening. And it is. Like, you know exactly what's going on. <laughs> and, you know, it, it basically, it, it, it's about injecting HTML, it's about injecting JavaScript, it's about injecting, you know, all kinds of stuff that you probably don't expect. Right. So, yeah. how do you prevent these things from happening if you, in your app? Right. So, so, again, we have newer specs to help prevent with this. Uh, the the yeah. most important one is something called CSP, stands for Content Security Policy. Okay. That's basically... Um, what happens is you can uh, have your, your page render in the browser and the web server when it renders the page mm -hmm. sends headers down to your browser. Okay. And what we're ultimately relying upon is, is the browser to enforce some sandboxing. So these headers tell your, your app or, or tells the browser, don't, you know, only let this JavaScript run and don't let any other JavaScript run. Okay. Okay. Problem is if you've already have an existing, you know, spa app or JavaScript app that you've built, and it does highly dynamic stuff, right. and it's pulling in scripts from all kinds of places, mm. you're kind of like the, the, the pander, you know, it's already out of the box, it's right. out of the you know, bag, and, and, the, and the, you know, your app is, is hard to like lock down at that point. Um, so it's, it's a hard problem to solve. CSP is one of the, the ways to help solve it. And um, so, again, you have to do this whitelisting thing of the of So the you're basically code. saying, here are all the libraries I'm using, so these are the sites that are allowed to call. Well, them. libraries add even more complexity okay. because... They, they might have dependencies in terms yeah, so, of Of course they do. So uh, some of the, the, the major frameworks that we use to build spas these days, Angular, React, right? They, those tend to have really good um, uh, sort of CSP uh, protection built in, and they, they are, they're safe, right, in right. terms of how they've been designed. Yeah. Um, so the core libraries seem to be okay. Uh, but yeah, once you start adding in this widget to do that and this widget to do that from other organizations or who knows where, they themselves then may, uh, you know, have weaknesses, if yeah, you will. They, they haven't done a good job of their own uh, content yes. policies. Typically, because if they're just some, you know, small development yeah, shop or a one person building something. Open source cool. too. Yeah. 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 So, so, so for example, so, so experts agree these days that um, if you're doing Angular or React, you're pretty in a pretty good shape on mm -hmm. cross-site scripting, uh, you know, from, from, from that point of view. But now you're pulling in some random library over NPM, for example, yeah? And, right. and both Angular and React have these backdoors, like unsafe write to DOM or something, yeah? And, you know, if you don't review every single piece of code they're pulling in, it might use one of these backdoors, hmm. right? To, maybe for performance reasons, maybe because the developer didn't know better, whatever. You know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's still a hard problem to solve. Content security policy is definitely working, but what we see from our consulting work is, is that um, it's only an effective tool if you do it right from the start. Yeah. Like yeah. The first thing you should do is enable content security policy and then write your application CSP compatible and not make your CSP compatible to your app. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, it's really hard to take an existing application, slap on CSP and think it, it'll work. So. A good example is GitHub, for example. So if you if, if you open the GitHub page and look at the, the, the CSP header they return, it's like five or six 
It's it's a long a long policy because they had to kind of take, take this huge application that already does many things, mm -hmm. and they, they they couldn't even like one of the most important features of CSP is to to turn off inline JavaScript. Right. So that basically you are forced to load every single JavaScript from a whitelisted location, basically. As GitHub wasn't able to do that because you can imagine there are parts of the application which is older. They use make use of inline JavaScript. You can you can't just turn it off. Right. Yeah. Uh, you, you're going to break the application. Now, basically. if you've got CSP in place in up front, you're just going to run into these issues as you go. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. So, and that forces you to deal with the problem. Right. Like you said, up front. You'll you'll work around not doing inline JavaScript. Yep. You, you'll uh, do so. You'll you'll tackle that problem a different that's way. That's the theory. That's yeah, the yeah, you would hope. Yes. <laughs> the, the other thing is that they found out that whitelisting is not really effective. Hmm. So um, there's a really good talk on Google that everybody should watch that is doing JavaScript. It's called "Make CSP Great Again." <laughs> <laughs> and um, there were some researchers from Google. And they basically, you know, Google has the technology to the spider the web, yeah, I think. Sure. So, so, they, so they went to any to every server on the internet and, and checked how many of them are actually using CSP. Mm. And it, it was only 1.6 million websites in total. That were using it. Yes. That's the one, yeah. That's the one. I'm, I'm um, just grabbing these links yep. as we go so people can see them. So, and they were able, from, uh, from these uh, 1.6 million policies, they were able to break 95% of them. Wow. Um, and that, uh, you know, like basically people, uh, and that, that's a sign that that is too complicated, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's security that is too complicated. Well, how many times have we heard that? So I, know, I, I, I remember I, code access security. That was fun. Don't, don't. <laughs> oh. don't. <laughs> I'm just tearing out old wounds on Dom here. But for example, yeah, um, what, what people do is they, they whitelist a CDN. Oh, okay. But that's, no. so that's everything. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, now everything. And, and what, what this guy found out is if this CDN contains a single JSONP endpoint, right. you can smuggle in arbitrary JavaScript now via a whitelisted location from an un... You know, yeah, so it's hard. Yeah, yeah no kidding. Hmm. So, yeah. Well, guys, hold that thought while we take a moment for this very important message. Support for this episode of .NET Rocks is brought to you by MongoDB. You know, as a software engineer, chances are you've crossed paths with MongoDB at some point, whether you're building an app for millions of users or just figuring out a side hustle. As the most popular non-relational database, MongoDB is intuitive and incredibly easy for development teams to use. Now, with MongoDB Atlas, you can take advantage of MongoDB's flexible document data model as a fully automated cloud service on Azure. MongoDB Atlas handles all the costly database operations and admin tasks that you'd rather not spend time on, like security, high availability, data recovery, monitoring, and elastic scaling. Plus, get access to the latest database features as soon as new versions are made generally available. Try MongoDB Atlas today. Visit mongodb.com rocks to learn more. And you're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. That's Richard Campbell. That's our friend Jerry Grouper. <laughs> That's uh, Dom and Brock, and we're here talking about Identity Server and got off on the security tangent, but I guess, you know, that's sort of what you guys do is you, you secure sites with Identity Server, authentication, authorization. Is there anything uh, else scary in the security realm that you guys have dealt with before other than these, uh, cross -site. these attacks? Yeah, these cross-site attacks. Um, well... Another thing that's making the rounds right now is um, is, is kind of like a not, not not really a new attack on OAuth, but it's, it's been around for a couple of years. It's called 
sub substitution attacks, yeah. basically. So, um, so in OAuth, there's this thing called the code flow, and the idea was uh, basically when you ask for a token, you don't get the token back straight away. You get a code, and then you have to use a client secret to exchange the code with the token to make yeah. it more secure. That you know, if an attacker can intercept that code in the browser, he can't he can't do it because he's missing the secret. Mm. And you know, attackers are pretty clever. So they, they found out like, okay, I can't do that myself, but what if I give you a stolen code? Will you happily turn that stolen code into a token? And the answer is yes, they will. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and, and OAuth doesn't have a solution to that problem. Um, hmm. Because that, that attack came after the spec was written, right. basically. Yeah. So, so where are they getting the stolen codes from? So maybe I'm, I make you install a malicious app on your phone, right? And you you log in to whatever trusted website that yep. produces the code, but the code the code is not sent back to you; it's sent to the attacker, right? And now I am logging into the real app, and when my code comes back, I exchange the stolen code with the the real, you know, the, the real my code, right? And then I'm impersonating you, right? Yeah. So, but I do have to exploit your device before I can steal codes. Yeah, or maybe you leak them via the browser. Maybe you're in a, in a hacked Wi-Fi or, hmm. you know. Maybe right. Troy Hunt's walking around with a pineapple. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> imagine any way that a, a, a code could be leaked. Sure, sure. Yeah. off an unsecured connection. And yeah. for, the, for example, yeah. So, um, and um, there's, a, there's, a, there's another, spe well, Part of what, what what Brock said before that um, that the guidance has changed around um, around how to to write spars. Hmm. There's another thing they're gonna add uh, or a spec that that protects you against this code substitution. It's mm -hmm. called Pixie, <laughs> proof key for code exchange. P okay. PKCE. Okay. Yeah, okay. For the record, <laughs> uh, you won't find anything with Pixie, I guess. Or no. Nope. Nothing yeah. security related, at least. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's another spec that, that actually, uh, you know, pr protects the application from this, from this attack. And uh, the, the nice thing is that um, it was initially created to help with certain scenarios in mobile applications. Right. But it, they, they found out that it, it, it actually works everywhere. So it works in JavaScript, it works in native applications, it works in web applications. And actually, the, the, the nice thing that came the re out of the recent researches is that people think we've been doing things way too complicated in the past. Hmm. Yeah. So OAuth has four flows. OpenID Connect has three flows. So that makes, uh, makes it seven in total, right? right. And, uh, when we did our workshop, that the last slide was kind of like a cheat sheet, you know, table with like, when you're doing this, use this flow. When you're doing that, use that flow. When you're doing this, and the way I had to explain it was like, it's, in, it's, it's like in the matrix, you know, where, where when Neo enters the matrix, all he sees is the green stuff. And he, he can't make any sense of it. And you yeah. need like a certain experience to, to see, be able you know? to pick which flow you're going to go and with. Sure. The, the nice thing that comes out of this research recently is that you're probably going to get away with two flows in total. Oh, wow. And, and that's going to be one which is for server-to-server -server style applications where no human is involved, just two machines talking to each other. Right. And one more for all types of interactive applications, which includes web applications, mm. native uh, applications, the, you, the WinForms application. Any, yeah, anywhere you, where you get input from a user. Where, where's a human involved, yeah. Okay. So that, that's good. That is good. That's a, I think that's, you know, you're almost down to the ideal, which would be one. But, uh, mm. but two think, is pretty good. I, I think these two scenarios are fundamentally different enough yes. that, it, it, that it's okay, I guess, that you have two ways of doing that. Yeah. What about the multi-factor aspects? 
That's unrelated to the okay. protocol. You know, the, the protocol just says you authenticate the user. Right. That's out of scope. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Or to the discretion of the implementer. Right. Um, the but discretion. so multi-factor is, is obviously one way of authenticating a human. Mm -hmm. um, but the, I think that the, the big news is really that you only have to learn this, this these two flavors. Two flows yeah. as a developer. Yeah. Yes. Just work on these two flows and you'll be fine. Yeah. How many, I'm getting back to identity server for a minute. How many um, contributors do you have actively Let's working on, a, on your <laughs> If only I could answer that question. Should we yeah. go look at the server itself? Yeah. All right. That's the main repo. Uh, 157 contributors. That's really great. And I'm yeah. sure there's plenty, you know, in the, in the, the lower half of the median that are one or two. Yeah, fix the comma. Yeah, fix the comma. But there's <laughs> there's Dom and Brock, and apparently Dom's kicking Brock's ass. Wow. And, and then the numbers drop down pretty quickly after that. But yeah, there's yeah. some contributions here and there. Like, yeah. It, it's still an area where, you know, like it, most people are scared contributing to the core. It's, got, it's right. security, yeah. It's yeah. not a trivial that's, place that's to work. That's the guy. Scott Brady. Scott Brady that did the device flow okay. um, implementation, for cool. example. Did it in eight commits, too. That's rocking. That's pretty good. We squashed them, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, show of hands. Anybody here uh, interested in contributing to Identity Server? Uh, All right. Yeah, there's a couple here and there. Yeah. Five? We, we actually had a, had a guy this week in the workshop who did a pull request while sitting in the workshop. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Yeah, and I he love that. He, he found a real bug, actually, and, and he fixed it. Wow. Um, maybe the other thing that's worth mentioning is um, that... It seems today is the end of a long, long journey that started with Microsoft. Um, right. Um, that it seems, uh, we got told we, um, that today Microsoft shipped the identity server integration uh, for, really? for ASP.NET Core. Yeah. Wow. So, so what does that mean? Yeah. So many, many, many years ago, and it's a long story, and I'm trying to make it really sh you know, short enough, is we got asked to give them feedback on their, on their token stuff. Right. And we told them it's not that great. So, <laughs> so, you know, there was always an option of, of taking our stuff and integrating it into their, um, into ASP.Katana ASP. by the time, actually, right? Right, at that time. Um, and, you know, big companies, lots of complications here, but... Um, oh, um, working with Microsoft's always an adventure. So, last year, I think, Microsoft announced they're going to build their own token service. Of course they are, because making another one is a great answer. Yes. Um, and there was actually a really nice that the community basically gave them a lot of pushback on GitHub. There were hundreds of responses, or maybe not hundreds, but dozens of responses saying, like, don't do that. Right. I mean, A, you have a track record of not, you know. No. <laughs> not knocking it out of the park on this kind of stuff. B, you know, there's this thing that, that all of us are using already. Right. Why wouldn't you just use that? And it's that? part of the .NET Foundation. Exactly. Right, right. So, um, so Barry Dorrance, he's the, you know... Uh, the, the, he the, is the, the curmudgeon in charge. He's yes, the chief security, troublemaker. security PM of the .NET framework, mm -hmm. actually. Um, so he started this work. Um, and basically, what they're shooting for is giving people a very easy way, like, file new project... And there, there will be a spa template and there will be a, an API template. And the idea is that Identifier will be inside of that template. Wow. So the clients will basically, uh, you know, get the token from Identity Server, use the token to authenticate to the API. And, you know, they made it with zero config. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Ouch. And so. we know that this is probably not reality, but for the, you know, for the template's purpose, 
people can start using the technology without having to read the specs first. They should read the spec at some point, I guess, right. and learn about how this stuff works. Wait, so does zero config mean it's not configured at all? You have to configure it, or does it mean you don't have to configure you, you, it? You don't, you don't have to configure it okay. because it works for the, te for the scenario that this template is shooting for, which I is see. one one server that contains the, the SPA, the API, and the token service. Okay. And then in, in future versions, they're going to want to have more scenarios like around... You know, separating them from each other and auto registration. So, does Microsoft still have their Azure Identity Service? And yes, but they wanted something basically that people can use locally with right Azure Core, yeah, yeah um, without buying into a, a specific right token product. Well, that's great. So that's there now. Um, we got told it's shipping with Preview Four of .NET Core Three, which apparently shipped today. Does anybody have a question for Dom or Brock? So let's repeat the question too. So the yeah. So your question is how did uh, security is kind of a niche topic? How did we how did we get into it? Uh, so well, a little bit of history here. So Dominic and I met uh, because we both taught at a training company called Developmentor back in the day. And back I in teach, the day, I used to teach Calm. Right, by the way. So no, not me. <laughs> I was always drawn to really complicated topics. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, and even comm security at the time was like, got to be a really interesting topic to me. And I just think it was, you know, um, fundamentally complicated topics that I could get my head wrapped around and tease apart. And, um, and you know, and then ASP.NET came out and I started doing web applications and we was trying to tinker around with how they're, they're, security system worked and, and of particular interest to me was um, their membership system, uh, like the database that held passwords and, and just how that all worked. And um, I built like a whole community project on, on that, just long story. Uh, I used to do a lot of online gaming and we had this whole community and we needed logins and I built this whole thing in my spare time around that system and you know, on and on and on. Um, so then Dominic and I met and in, I'll let him describe his background in a minute, but, but given his background, we both totally hit it off because we were really interested in the same, same topics. And we were like, how does this work? And how does this work? And we would, I remember before Skype, we would actually get on Microsoft Messenger. And uh -huh. we, would, we would both have the, um, the ILD compiler up on our screens. So we weren't really <laughs> doing screen sharing, but we would be on Messenger and we'd be like, look at this line of code. What is this doing? And we'd, you know, he'd say, like, oh, I think it's doing this. And we're like, no, but this is. So we would, like, <laughs> we would pair before, I don't yeah, know, pair Skype pair. and screen sharing <laughs> yeah. and things like that. Yeah, it was a little bit slower than, I, than it works now, but yeah. So Brock, anyway. Brock, Brock actually decompiled ASP.NET 2.0 and recompiled it again so we can step through the source code. Yeah. <laughs> well, aren't was, you the hack? That was a little nerdy. <laughs> That's a little nerdy. Yeah. That's actually not the nerdiest thing I ever did, but that's I'll I'll save that in case we have time later. But, so. but two point <laughs> they had the membership providers. So say again, yeah. In two point they had the membership providers. Yeah, absolutely. The security model around. And, and so we, we we use you use Reflector right to export it into C sharp, right? Right. And then recompile it in Visual Studio <laughs> <laughs> and change the strong name on it, right? Yeah. So that we can load it from IIS. <laughs> it took me three days. Wow. Three full days to decompile all their code. Fix you know, the code, I guess. Yeah, fix up. There were like 
because the decompiled code was didn't really match the the actual source code. So right. like some if blocks had the like the braces in the wrong location, while loops just it was just not huh. quite broken. Huh. Or it was a little bit broken. So I had to kind of guess. Uh, yeah, it took me three full days, and then I. I remember I emailed my MVP lead and I said, I've gone to all this work. Isn't this something I should blog about? And they were like, we'd rather you not. <laughs> <laughs> How to decompile.net. <laughs> well, those were the days when, you know, that they, they were more concerned about their intellectual property and before everything went open source. Even, even when it was a profit product they never sold, that they yeah. always gave away. Yep. They still got really anxious about that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. I remember I, 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 I tried to con contribute to Mono uh, basically, they were missing claims. Yeah, that the claims class and claims principle and claims identity mm -hmm. did, it, was, it, it didn't exist in Mono. Yeah, right. Yeah. So before you could actually contribute that code, you had to sign uh, basically a contract saying, "I never saw the original source code of the .NET framework." Right. right. It's purely based on reverse engineering, and uh, obviously this isn't true if you have Reflector. Of course, you looked at the source code. So yeah. and, uh, if we can just geek out a little further, being all the old guys that we are, you remember the rotor. Uh, yep. Project. Yep. So Rotor was an open source, no, shared source, shared, shared source, source yeah, for right. academics. Yeah, for academics only version of the .NET framework that Microsoft put out. And I thought when Miguel de Acasa started Mono that he may have used Rotor, and he says no. We never. I never even looked at it because he didn't want the liability. Yeah, he was super concerned about contamination. Yeah. He was doing this total, he worked from the ECMA specifications, this total sort of clean room implementation. And that makes him even more of a rock star for doing, re, basically rebuilding the .NET framework all by himself. Yeah, crazy hard problem. Yeah. So yeah, so to, to answer your question, I, um, I was a developer. I, I studied um, in, um, uh, information technology. And I was done studying in 1999, and that was the first dot-com crisis, basically. And there was no good jobs for developers out there. I mean, nothing interesting, at least. So uh, I had a friend of a friend that just started a new security company, and they were all network security guys, like, you know, routers and switches and mm. firewalls. And the only thing they couldn't do is... Um, uh, is write code. So, so they needed someone to write scripts for them, to automate stuff. And I thought, okay, I can do that, so like bash scripts and that, that kind of stuff. So, so does that mean you were kind of like the DevOps of security back then? I invented DevSecOps. I think that... No, I didn't. Um, so, and while working at this company... Uh, I worked as a penetration tester and I learned all that stuff and it, it, it's super enlightening as a developer to, to see the other side, basically how people are attacking yourself. Sure, yeah. Actually, yeah. This is Troy Hunt's sort of hack yourself ideas. Yes, but right. uh, yeah, but... You did it first. I know. That, that was, uh, <laughs> I, I was first, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> no, that, that was in... in that was in 2000. Yeah. That was the golden days of penetration testing because we had Windows Server 2000. Yes. Every single day, a new root level exploit. Well, and, and yeah, IIS was like the Swiss Army knife with all the blades turned yes. out. Like, yes. which angle yes. would you like to penetrate it so, on? Turn your server into a waiter. So actually, uh, me and my colleagues had a, had a competition going on, going to a new customer, having a penetration test. Who is first domain admin? <laughs> it was a race. You're all going to get there. Who can get there fastest? Me. Right. <laughs> I, I still, up to date, hold the record 18 minutes from entering the company to being domain admin in their system. <laughs> Anyways, um, after three or four years, I, I thought, like, okay, now I know how that stuff works, but I, I would rather prefer to, to um, 
work with developers again to tell them what they should do to secure their code against all of these attacks. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the dot-com crisis was over. There was, again, more interesting work for developers. So I became independent, started at this training company, met Brock, um, took over their .NET security course from a guy called Keith Brown, uh, who was the security guru by the time, um, and wrote a book, never write a book, it's a bad idea, but wrote a book, <laughs> never write a book. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for that. I appreciate that. Uh, wrote, wrote a book about, uh, it, it was called ASP.NET 2.0 security or something like that. Um, more secure, uh, whatever. Uh, Brock was the technical reviewer of that book. Um, it got released. Four weeks after the book got released, uh, there was a new book called, uh, a, a new version of ASP.NET called 3.0. <laughs> So <laughs> I, I can feel your pain. I did the same thing with yes, BB uh, back in so the day. Yes, and so I went back to Microsoft and like, can't you at least uh, like put a sticker on it? Uh, like uh, also covers ASP.NET 3.0. And <laughs> the mar it turns out the margins on, bo on books they were so low that even getting a book back, putting a sticker on, and sending it back to the bookstore didn't work. Wasn't worth it. No, huh. I found your book from yeah. 2006. I'm going to share that link with everybody. Is, that, is it on eBay? Is it a collector's it, it, item? No, it's, on the, it's in the ACM D digital library. If you're a member, you can get a free download of it. You can probably get it on Google Books now. Yeah, or BitTorrent. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Average number of downloads in the past 12 months, zero. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it is for ASP.NET 2. Okay. Thank like, God nobody's reading yeah. it. You know, actually, the, the, the most important event was uh, when I started to write a new course. Uh, and you said, like, okay, we make a deal. You teach me all the stuff, and I'm writing the labs for you. Because I, I hated writing labs. I, I still do today. Mm -hmm. So basically, I, I taught Brock all about Dabayev back then, right? The Windows Identity Foundation. Yes. And he wrote the labs for me. I wrote the slides, and that's basically how we started working. And was that card space? Whiff. It's another uh, thing you shouldn't mention. <laughs> uh, see, I'm nothing but pain for you, Dom. I remember we did a great show with Kim Cameron. I love that guy. Yep, he was a good guy. It seemed like such a good idea at the time. Yeah. Because we still haven't really got... Are you paying attention to this thing with Tim Berners-Lee, the whole solid and... Yeah, and, and, and actually, uh, um, um, Kim Cameron has this new thing, mm -hmm. right? The, the, the Distributed Identity... Uh, Foundation, or right. what they call it, yeah, which uses blockchain. Apparently, <laughs> well, because yeah. blockchain will save the world, <laughs> yes. apparently. But it's actually card space two point zero. If you look at is it, is it really? Um, yeah, but taking a different approach of being distributed as of being like a centralized yeah. thing. So, yeah, the the idea is still there. But I think, to be honest, uh, what what we see with our with my customers at least is that the pendulum is swinging back. That with all of the stories we hear about Facebook and so on, people are don't are very. So social logins is not the biggest thing anymore. No, they're going the other way. Yes. We, uh, in one of the projects we were doing for the Red Cross and Humanitarian Toolbox, mm -hmm. we included that social login aspect. And we were only talking to Red Cross people who were testing this app for them. And they're like, no, I'd rather enter username and password. I don't want you to have anything to do with my Facebook or Google account. And that, that was me was really eye-opening that regular mortal volunteers had that reaction. And to, and to, be, to be honest, uh, like, like, um, um, the latest iOS operating system. Yeah. Every iOS has now a built-in password manager. Yeah. Right? I mean, um, that's probably the better solution to the problem than giving Facebook all of your login data. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask. Were these uh, people using the app, were they savvy enough to use a password manager? No. 
Okay. They were regular mortal, you know, volunteers at Red Cross. Very nice people, but, I mean, besides us, who uses a password manager? Every iOS user now. And well, that's, I mean, that's very interesting. That's, that, that's a great achievement from Apple. Sure. Basically, when you go to a website and it asks for, you know, like a name and password, it basically says, like, should, should, should I create a password for you? And it just randomly creates a secure password, stores it on the on the device. Right. And the next time you go there, it offers you to type it back in. Okay. So mm. they made password managers compatible for mere mortals. So basically yeah? mandatory. You, you have yeah. to fight it to not use it. Well, that... I don't know, but what I'm, I think they did a great job, like, you know, like making non-technical people use a password yeah. manager. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Do those sync over to your Mac? If you want to, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Hmm. Well, there's, therein lies the walled garden advantage, they have, right? They, they have to, the, their password manager has the worst possible name you can imagine. It's called iCloud Keychain. Wow. <laughs> so when I hear that name, I think password oh boy yeah yeah it's nice to see apple doing things badly too. yeah, yeah. Right. yeah i was I mean, gonna say it could microsoft, be microsoft used to be the maybe. king of that it's yeah. a universal problem yeah right? My, what do you mean used to be they're still doing it <laughs> yeah, i guess that's true but. well now we have things that have cool names like blazer um speaking of that any any users using blazer identity servers with blazer yeah i don't think i have any customers using it but i actually I get asked frequently, like, what, you know, what yeah. you're doing, happen. right? Right. And since Blazor's fundamentally just code running in your browser, yeah. that falls under the SPA JavaScript category. Yeah, sure. It, it's JavaScript grown up. Yeah, exactly. And, and Blazor is really a, uh, a SPA framework. It is, absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, it, there's nothing special that we need to do or nothing different that we need to do. You're still running in the context of the browser. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's cool. Yeah. So, so we probably do have Blazor customers. We just don't yeah. know. Just don't know. Well, there's, I can tell, it's still experimental enough that nobody's betting real projects on it's it. It's really cool. It's all experimental. Well, uh, part of it's going to ship with .NET Core 3. Yeah, the Razor components. Razor components. Yeah. yeah. We've done that show. Yeah. So that, that, that's interesting. But again, it has nothing to do with the security context at all. It's, it's all going to be exactly the same thing. Well, guys, this is a heck of a lot of fun. It's always good talking to you. And um, I can't wait to hear the next installment of Identity Server. Hear about it. Thank you very much. Dom and Brock, give me a hand. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got